Chapter Nine of My Experiences as an Executioner by James Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Nine from the Murderer's Point of View. Burns sang, and we are fond of repeating his singing. Oh, what some power the gifty gears to see ourselves as others see us but i've never heard anybody utter the opposite aspiration for the gift to see others as they see themselves and yet i'm not quite sure that this gift is not as desirable as the other at any rate if we are to legislate wisely and well for any class of people it is absolutely necessary that we should be able to see things from their own point of view it is with much hesitation that I start this chapter, for I know that my power to analyse thought and character is not great enough to enable me to deal with the subject on broad lines. But if I can induce a few people to consider the question of murder and its punishment from the murderer's point of view, the chapter will do good. On the whole, I think that our attitude toward murderers is based too much on sentiment and too little on reason. Many people pity all murderers, whether they deserve it or not. Many others condemn them, body, soul and spirit, without considering to what extent they are the result of circumstances. If I can induce my readers to consider that a murderer has as much right to judge the state as the state has to judge him, I think this book will have achieved one good purpose. I do not wish to work out an argument, but will just give a few of the expressed ideas of the murderers in the hope that they may give rise to fruitful trains of thought. I would point out, however, that many of the people who have died on the scaffold have lived in such deplorable circumstances, assailed by every sort of temptation, surrounded by an atmosphere of gay and hollow vice, cradled in misery and educated in wretchedness and sin, with little of the good and the beautiful entertaining into their lives to raise them, but with the accursed facility for obtaining drink to lure them down, in such deplorable circumstances, I say, that even an angel could hardly keep himself unspotted from such a world. When men commit a horrible crime, it is our duty to exact the penalty, but it will do us no harm to consider whether we are in any way responsible for the conditions which may have driven them to crime and whether we cannot do even more than we are doing for the prevention of crime by the improvement of the conditions. Besides the conditions of life, the mental status of the wretched culprit should be worthy of attention, and I think we might ask ourselves whether it would not have been better for some of the murderers, as well as for society, if they had been placed under lifelong restraint years before their careers reached the murder stage. There are many other questions which will naturally occur to the thoughtful reader, and which I need not indicate. Arthur Shaw Amongst my earlier executions was that of Arthur Shaw at Liverpool. Shaw was a tailor, thirty-one years of age, who lived in Manchester. He was married, but his married life was not happy, for his wife seems to have drunk heavily, and he himself was not steady. On November 3rd, 1884, they quarrelled and fought for some time, and shortly afterwards the woman was found dead, killed, according to the doctors, by strangulation. Shaw did not deny the murder, but pleaded that it was unintentional, and that he had been greatly provoked by his wife's long-continued dissipation. 
the jury strongly recommended him to mercy. Immediately before meeting his fate in a last conversation with the chaplain, the man admitted his guilt, but earnestly insisted that he had never intended to cause his wife's death. He stated that he was not drunk at the time of the murder, but that he had been driven to drink by his wife's drunkenness and neglect of the home which was always miserable, and that her drunkenness and neglect exasperated him until he was perfectly wild. He concluded by saying, when we were having the scuffle, I had no idea I was killing the poor woman. Thomas Parry, hanged in Galway on January 20th, 1885, for the murder of Miss Burns, wrote a long statement, which he handed to the governor to be read after his death. The gist of it was given in the following paragraph. I wish to assure the public and my family and friends that I was of unsound mind for a week previous to the murder and for some time afterwards. I am happy to suffer for the crime which I committed and confident that I shall enter upon an eternity of bliss. I die at peace with all men and hope that any one that I have ever injured will forgive me. George Horton of Swanwick poisoned his little daughter for the purpose, it is supposed, of obtaining the sum of seven pounds for which her life was insured, and was executed at Derby on February 1st, 1886. It is difficult or impossible for an ordinary person to understand such a man's frame of mind. One would think him absolutely callous. Yet he wept over the body of his child when he found that she was dead and wrote a most affectionate letter to his other children when he was in prison. A portion of his last letter to his eldest daughter was as follows. You must be sure to pray to God to guide you all your life through and you must pray for your brothers and sisters. I do pray to God to guard you all your life through. So my dear daughter, you must think of what I have told you. You must always tell the truth, and when you are tempted to do wrong, you must pray to God for his help, and he will hear you. Always remember that, my dear children, and you must tell the others the same. You that is your brothers and sisters, God has promised to be a father to you always. Remember that he sees all you do and all you think. Then if you do his will while here on earth, he will receive you to his throne in glory where all is peace and rest so my dear children you will be able to meet all your brothers and sisters and your poor dear mother in heaven and by the help of god i shall meet you there too may god help you all and bless you and keep you all your lives through he will do it if you pray to him and ask him you know you must take everything to god in prayer for you know you will have no one else to help you. So no more from your loving father, George Horton. May God bless you all, kisses for you all. Edward Pritchard was an instance of how evil communications corrupt good manners, and a striking example of the unfortunate uselessness of our reformatory system. At twelve years of age he was convicted for being an associate of thieves and sentenced to two years in a reformatory. For three years after leaving the reformatory, he managed to keep out of prison, but when seventeen, he was sentenced to four months' imprisonment for shop-breaking, and after this he was frequently in jail. About a year before the murder, he appeared to have reformed, attended Sunday school and chapel, and took an active part in religious work right up to the time of committing the murder. 
he murdered a small boy of fourteen who was in the habit of regularly fetching money from the bank to pay the wages at a large factory and stole from him the wages money amounting to over two hundred pounds the evidence of the deed was absolutely conclusive and overwhelming and pritchard had no hope of a reprieve a day or two after his conviction he wrote a letter to one of his sunday school teachers in which he professed to have seen the error of his ways urged all his companions to shun bad company drinking and smoking spoke of the delight with which he remembered some of the sunday school hymns and anticipated the pleasure of soon singing them up there all through his life there seems to have been a struggle between good and evil with an unfortunate balance of power on the side of evil it is difficult to believe that he would have devoted his spare time for a year to religious work if he had not felt strong aspirations for the higher life after conviction he said but little about himself and made no formal statement or confession but a letter which he wrote to the father of the murdered boy will throw some light upon his mental state in this letter pritchard distinctly affirms that he was led to commit the crime by the instigation of a companion and though the statements of a convicted murderer must always be received with caution it is possible that there was some ground for this assertion if the crime was really suggested and the criminal encouraged by the influence of another and probably a stronger mind we may well ask ourselves how much of the moral blame attaches to the instigator and how much to the weak tool the letter was as follows her majesty's prison monday february fourteenth sir i write these lines to you to express my deep sorrow for the dreadful crime i have done to you and to your master i write to ask you if you and your wife will forgive me for killing your boy and please ask the master if he will forgive me for taking his money from him it would not have happened if i had not been incited to do it and it was by no other person than blank blank who was a witness against me he persuaded me to do it and said he might do it himself if i did not so i did the unhappy affair i am very sorry i ever met with blank at all but it cannot be called back now i have cried to god for mercy i must still cry and i hope i shall gain a better home i have asked him to forgive me and blot out all my sins and wash me in my saviour's precious blood and i think and feel he will do it i'm going to receive the holy communion on wednesday and i should like to hear from you by wednesday before i go to the partaker of that holy feast if you will forgive me i shall be more at peace i am very very sorry indeed for what i have done there is nothing that can save me from my doom which will be on thursday but i can ask god to have mercy on my poor soul i have no more to say at present only that i was a great friend of poor harry and i went nearly mad about it the first few nights and could not sleep but now i find comfort in jesus Goodbye, sir please send me an answer by return of post and i hope we shall meet in heaven from edward pritchard gloucester county jail gloucestershire a few particulars of pritchard's last moments are given in how murderers die alfred scandrett another young man only just twenty years old was another example of the result of bad influences his father deserted the home when alfred was about ten years old 
His mother was a hard-working woman who contrived to support her family by mangling and by selling papers in the street, in which latter work she was assisted by Alfred and several other children. The lad was fond of hanging round street corners and public houses, and his mother found it impossible to keep him at home like the other children. He continually made resolutions, but again and again he was led away by his companions, and at twelve years of age he was convicted for stealing cigars from a shop, but discharged with a caution. A month later he was charged with another offence and sentenced to twenty-one days. Other imprisonments followed, then five years in a reformatory, but punishment was no cure. His love for his mother was his one redeeming feature, and if she had not been forced by grinding poverty to work almost day and night at her mangling and paper-hawking, she might have succeeded in saving him from himself. He tried to break away from his evil associations, and at one time begged his mother to find money to take him to Canada, but she was utterly unable to scrape together enough to pay the passage. A youth called Jones, who was hanged with Scandrett, was his companion in his final crime, a burglary ending in murder. Although attached to his mother, who said he had always been a good lad to her, Scandrett could not bear the idea of living at home when he was engaged in crime, so that almost the whole of the last years of his life was spent when out of jail in common lodging houses. After his conviction for murder and sentence to death, his great anxiety was for his mother, and well might he be anxious, for the poor woman suffered sadly for his sin. As soon as it was known that she was the mother of a murderer, her customers, to their eternal disgrace be it said, withdrew their patronage to such an extent that her mangling earnings dropped from twelve or fourteen shillings to two shillings a week, and her newspaper trade fell away to nothing. She was even hunted and insulted in the streets when she went to her accustomed corner to sell the papers. To get from her home in Birmingham to Hereford Jail for a last interview with her son, she was obliged to pawn her dress, and even that only raised enough money to pay the fare one way, so that she had to trust to chance for the means of getting back again. Some of the prison officials, more humane than her friends at home, subscribed enough money to pay the return fare. The last meeting was a very affecting one. Scandrett comforted his mother by assuring her that they would meet in heaven, and said, Pray daily and hourly, mother, as I have done, and then we shall meet in heaven. Arthur Delaney The number of men who are driven to crime through drink is something terrible, and I should think that no temperance worker could read the real histories of the murderers who have come under my hands without redoubling his efforts to save men from the curse of drink. A case in point was Arthur Delaney, executed at Chesterfield on August 10, 1888. It may be said that he was naturally a bad, violent man, but surely he would never have become a murderer if he had not consistently made himself worse and worse by hard drinking. His victim was his wife, to whom he had been married four years, and who was spoken of as a respectable, hard-working woman. Not very long after the marriage, in a drunken fit, he violently assaulted her, for which action the magistrates imposed a fine and granted a separation order. His wife, however, forgave him, and in spite of his bad behaviour, continued to live with him. A few days before the murder, he was unusually violent, and treated his wife so brutally that she was obliged to again appeal to the magistrates, who again imposed a fine. 
This raised Delaney's anger to such an extent that the next time he got drunk he battered his wife so violently that she had to be removed to the hospital where she died. Like many other culprits, Delaney saw the cause of the mischief when it was done, and a letter written after his sentence has a ring of simple earnestness about it that makes it worth preserving. It was written to some good Templars who had tried to reform him. Her Majesty's Prison, Derby, August 8th, 1888. My dear friends, I write you farewell on this earth, but hope with God's great mercy to meet you all there, where there will be no more sorrow or temptation. I do sincerely thank you for your kindness to me, and hope that my fall will be the means of, with God's help of lifting others up from a drunkard's grave. Had I followed your advice, my poor wife would be alive now and we should have been happy, for she was a faithful and good wife to me. God knows that I should not have done such a dreadful crime if I had kept my pledge, but hope it will be a warning to those that play with the devil of solution. Will you tell Blank to give his heart to God, and he will be safe from his great curse, the drink? Bid him and his wife farewell for me, and tell him to put all his powers to work to help the noble work of temperance onward, for it is God's work. Oh, do implore them that it is playing with the drink to abstain from it, for it is a national curse. Now farewell to you all, and may God prosper your noble work. From your unfortunate friend, Arthur T. Delaney. What proportion of murders is directly traceable to drink, it would be very difficult to say, but time after time we find that murderers who write to their friends state that drink, and drink only, has caused their ruin. Elizabeth Barry Although I am endeavouring in this chapter to give a few ideas of the motives for murder, as seen by the murderers themselves, I am not by any means condoning their crimes. My main object is to induce people to look more into the predisposing causes of crime. I want them to consider whether in many cases prevention is not better than cure, and whether more cannot be done to remove the causes. Undoubtedly drink has to answer for the largest number of such crimes. After drink comes lust and jealousy, though these almost invariably reach the murder climax through drink. The other main motive is the love of money, which has led to many of the most heartless, inhuman deeds that it has been my lot to avenge. I have given one or two instances of parents who have murdered their own children for the sake of a few pounds of insurance money, and much instances could be multiplied. In fact, so apparent did the motive become a year or two back that the government was obliged to pass a law regulating the insurance of the lives of infants. If such an act, or even a further-reaching one, had been in existence earlier, Elizabeth Berry might have been alive now instead of lying in a felon's grave. Mrs. Berry poisoned her daughter, aged eleven. At the time of the murder, the child's life was insured for £10, for which Mrs. Berry was paying a premium of one pence per week. The murderess had also made a proposal for a mutual insurance on her own life and the child's by which £100 should be paid on the death of either to the survivor. She was under the impression that the policy was completed, but as a matter of fact it was not. It seems almost impossible that a woman should murder a child for the sake of gaining even the full sum of £110, and we might be justified in believing that there must be some other motive if it were not for the fact that infanticide has been committed again and again for much smaller sums. 
From the point of view of the murderers of children, it would seem that a few pounds in money appears a sufficient inducement to soil their hands with the blood of a fellow creature. It is well, therefore, for the sake of child life that the temptation should be removed. End of chapter 9 Recording by Ashley Jane